For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Larry Hughes is going to pop out and get the ball. Jordan's going to rub his man off of Leitner and then cut down the center and gets a nice pass from Larry Hughes. Hello, Wizards fans. Welcome into another Believe in Wizards podcast. I'm Matt Moderno, and today I'm going to be joined by Osmond Begg and Kevin Broom of Bullets Forever. We're going to be talking about, well, just what there is to talk about in Wizards world right now. Uh, one of the questions we had posed to us at Bullets Forever is, why is Wes Unsell Jr. getting a pass on this season and how poorly the team has played, especially over the last like 10 games or so? So we're going to break that down a little bit. Also, Bradley Beal has been very active in the media. He's been doing some interviews. He showed up on NBC. He was on the Draymond Green podcast. So we're going to go through some of those quotes and comments and things like that and just really dissect what we're hearing from him and if there's anything sort of worthwhile to take away from those things and, and just kind of get into that a little bit. We've got a couple we've got a couple other miscellaneous topics here that we'll hit at the end and we'll just kind of go from there. But quick a first ad read from our sponsor Bet Online. It's that time of year as college basketball takes center stage with the tournament finally upon us. If you're looking to wager this year, BetOnline is the number one spot for all your updated odds and info, along with great contests, including the bracket contest, where you have a chance to take home the top prize. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE to get started. BetOnline is your continued source for all sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino games. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, let's get to my conversation with Oz and Kevin. All right, I'm joined by Kevin and Oz here. We're going to kind of hit their wizard roundtable of, of topics at the moment. I want to start a little bit with last night's game, guys. I was going back and forth with another Wizards fan last night about this game on Twitter afterwards, and I couldn't have a more drastically different opinion than this person. They focused on what a like inspiring comeback the Wizards made against the defending champions who despite being out being without their two best players apparently doesn't matter to them because the wizards were without their two best players so it's inspirational stuff that they really dug deep to me i'm focused on the 13 point first quarter and the fact that it was just really really terrible basketball and we'll get into some of wes's comments about that too but how can you defend what we saw to start last night's game? Like they were, the game was basically over before it started. And anything that happened after that to me is just a total fool's gold. The Bucks didn't, you know, the Bucks phoned it in and cruised to the finish line. I just want to get your guys take on that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I very much agree with your take on this. It's like in, in every NBA season, you're going to have quarters like that, right? You're going to have games where you're just not quite ready to start, but the, if if you're a good team, if you're a deep team, if you care, then something clicks in along the way. And it's not until you're down 28 in the fourth quarter and then you make this fake comeback to, to lose by 12. I mean, 
And that's what that is, because when you're down 28 in the second quarter, right, at that point, the rest of the game is really garbage time. It's just you, you can try. You can make a little bit of a rally. You can make things close at the end, but you're still – It's meaningless. It's, it's still garbage time, right? And so when you score, say, you know, seven points in the fourth quarter because the other team has really stopped defending, they just don't care, right? Um, the, the, there's just nothing to – there's no moral victory in that. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally agree. There is – I mean, look, everyone always says, oh, we let miss Steve and, Steve and Phil. What is uh, what does Steve Buckhans call this? He, he called it garbage time. Yep. I think that was his term. So he class it up. Yeah, and there's it clearly was that they were down 26 after three. They were never in it the first three quarters. Milwaukee was playing without Giannis and Middleton. And yes, I understand the Wizards are playing out without people. But my point to that is in the fourth quarter, Milwaukee was playing with the, normally their third stringers. And okay, the third stringers had their guard down. And, you know, and so at that point, what happened? Yeah, you make a you if you we were playing our bets against their third stringers we were playing our good players against their third stringers and happened to like cut into the lead a little bit once it was already but yeah they uh, the other team took their foot off foot off the gas a little bit and we made it on the scoreboard look presentable but it was never a presentable game and it's just it's there's nothing to be taken from that it's it's yes i guess kudos to them for not quitting but maybe not even that. I'm not, I can't even go there. They they put themselves in that position. So like, not, me, there's there literally a, nothing positive to take from it. <laughs> yeah, there was a telling moment in the fourth quarter, and uh, Avdia drove and he went middle, he got middle on the Bucks, and he got a layup. And I think that cut the lead to something like you know 14 to 12, something like that. But the point is that in the fourth quarter, he drove middle of a game that the Bucks were sure were going to win. And coach, uh, the, the Milwaukee coach, Budenholzer, he called timeout and lit into his team for letting Abdia get middle on. Mm-hmm. And that is something that's like, that's a team that is serious about competing, that is serious about playing at a championship level. A coach was not going to just let them coast on that, even though they were had gone up big, even though they were going to win. And that was very clear. <laughs> the coach was like, no, we're, we're not right. putting up with that here. We saw that against Denver also with Mike Malone. Uh, Denver was consistently up 20 throughout the game. If the Wizards would score consecutive baskets or if he did not like how a basket was scored, even if we would still be, if, even if the Nuggets were still up 18, he would immediately call timeout and you could see his displeasure. Um, and on top of that, like the team just has not been competitive. So there's really, there really is nothing to take out of it. They've lost in their last like handful of losses, you have a 13 point loss, a 14 point loss, an 18 point loss, an 18 point loss again. And then the 12 point loss yesterday, which really could have been bigger. And especially coming off a swing against Houston, who was, which is the worst team in the NBA, where you go from up 23 to losing by what, 18. Mm-hmm. Once you come off like off a game, like, yeah. Once you come off a game like that, I don't care if you make a fourth quarter comeback which is not even a real comeback. So that's no, there's nothing to take out of it. And, you know, it's, uh, I listened to the comments post game from coach Unseld and that even raised a few more questions, which we will get into in the second part yeah. of this episode. Uh, the wizards are two, they've won two of their last 11 games. And I would say nine of those games have been largely uncompetitive. Right. And at this point in the year, 
play the young guys, let them play really hard. And if you get beat by 30, but those guys are trying, they're just making a ton of mistakes. Like, I feel like you can live with that. But when you're playing vets and they come out super flat and you continue to play those same vets and they stay super flat, that's that signals to me that you have no idea what you're doing or what's supposed to be happening. So again, whatever the final score is, if, if you want to be delusional and focus on that and say it was a great game and we should be inspired and kudos to them, like you can do that. I'm going to choose to be disappointed in the overall stretch of play here. I don't yeah. care about the play in. I don't really, the draft pick, it is what it is. If they lose, so be it. But I just want to see, give a shit, just some yeah. amount of give a shit. And, and that's, that's, that's oh, sorry, go ahead. And that's no. my thing. Like, I, I'm actually, uh, like, I like where the lottery position is trending. Like, just as a, as, as someone who I think, at least in my opinion, realizes, my opinion, I realize that they need high-end young talent. So the only way to get that for this franchise is via the draft. So yes, the lower their, or the more lottery balls they get, the better for them. That being said, like, in an ideal, if I could sketch it out, young players would play well. They still lose their positioning still that gets better. What we're seeing is young players are not playing well. Um, they are still, they're playing through their mistakes a little bit, but veterans are more allowed to play through mistakes and get more playing time. Regardless. It's still like, if you were to focus on it, yes, the young players are playing, they're not playing that they're not playing well, neither are the vets, but the vets are still really kind of monopolizing the, the field goal attempts, the ball, it's a lot of Raul Neto, it's a lot of Ish Smith, it's a lot of Caldwell Pope. I think the worst or the most unappealing formula for like a, a fun tank is watching Neto, oh Caldwell Pope, and Ish Smith play, like lead the tank charge as you get blown out by 15 points every night. It's, it's so painful to watch. Yeah, I mean, watching like Ish Smith fuel the, com- the comeback last night was like... <laughs> what's the point he's like 34 33 he's you know if you bring him back next year it's going to be a one-year minimum salary you don't want to actually play him other than you know a few minutes here and there you want to get somebody who's good and i mean i love ish I, I i like the guy a lot i was very dubious of signing him in the first place as i think people know but he he proved to be better than i expected to be and he's a good guy he's the kind of guy you'd love to have around your roster to be maybe an assistant coach. I could see that someday, but there's no point in a phony comeback led by a guy who has no future, you know, in the NBA beyond like, you know, playing out a couple more contracts until he really does get too old. Yeah. If you, if you playing and he moves into becoming a coach or an executive or something, you know, right. You you know exactly what he is. We don't need to see 30 minutes of Ishmael. Yeah, he doesn't something. even fit the Brad Beal mold of what he's looking for in a That's guard, right. apparently. Which we'll also get to. Uh, the only thing I'll say about playing Ish is if it's Ish surrounded by four of the young guys, yeah. I'm cool with it. Right. You know, if you just need an adult to be like, no, no, you need to be there or you should have been here or I'm going to put it for you here. So like totally fine. Ish yeah. with four other vets is nonsense. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's like, I asked this question, I think during the second quarter last night, but it's like, why, why I love Anthony Gill, right? Another guy very much like he's the a bigger version of Ishmael, right? It's like, why, why, why is he playing? What exactly? You can keep him I'm for the vet saying, minimum. No one's going to chase him in free agency. If you want him on the roster, sign him yeah. for the vet min again, let, let him mentor everyone on the bench again next season. He does not have to be in the game that late. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not even saying play like Thomas Bryant, play, play anybody, play Rui Hachimura at center. 
Wait, Todd, a couple center minutes. Who cares? Like, you know, just to throw someone out there. Experiment with it. Yeah. Why isn't Todd playing right now? He's been with the organization. We know he's not ready to play, but why, like, at this point, what is the harm in getting some live, live film on him against NBA competition for more than five minutes of also garbage time and also just get see see what he does in 25 so that he could evaluate that and say this is what i have to work on in the summer that's the huge piece you may not learn anything about todd by playing him these minutes like way before he's ready but he'll learn very painfully that he's not ready and that fuels you into the offseason if you just get embarrassed for the last eight games of the year like that's a takeaway for him so right. yeah the value of playing the young guys is like well it, it, a few things one is you can, you can find out about them Two, they can find out about themselves and then they're, they can go in different directions, right? Because yes, it can be fueled to go work, right? That's getting, getting, I, I mean, my, my own like basketball tenure when I was like in eighth grade playing um, high schoolers 20 again in 21, right. And just getting blasted. It's like, okay, I'm going to learn how to shoot. I'm, I've got to learn how to dribble. I've got to, you know, I've got to learn some moves. I've got to come up with a step back and a fall fade away and all these, these things, right? Because I, I hated getting shut out game after game after game. Right. And so, but you can also go the other way, right. You get blasted and, you know, maybe oh, you're a really, and you just fold up or maybe you're Jan Vesely and you get in your head and you fold up that, that can happen too. So there's some risk there, but here's the thing is for, for the team, that's valuable information to have. Yeah. You know, yeah. You want to know if you've got what, what kind of guys you got on your team and, uh, yeah. I think there's a perfect segue into assistant general manager, Bradley Beal, or assistant to the general manager, whatever title we're, we're giving him now. He was on the post game the other night and talked about what the Wizards actually need to improve this roster next season, which, again, I, I still think is like a really tone deaf, tactless move from the organization to have, trot him out there and talk about how to improve the team. But it's a different story. But uh, one of the things he focused on was the need for bigger guards. And guards who can get into the paint for them, guards who can shoot, and guards who defend. Wouldn't it be nice if your super max player was a bigger guard? He played defense, he could shoot, and he could get to the rim. I'm just going to lead with that, I guess. But what did you guys think of his comments? Uh, Just the fact that he made those comments. We can dissect in a minute here whether they're truthful or not, I guess. It's, it's, (laughs) you can't explain. I guess on one hand, like, look, there's obviously there's no reason that interview couldn't have happened in two and a half to three weeks. On you could do it the day after the last game of the season, or even that evening. You could have him on that evening after the season is over. Basically, the season is done at that point, and ask those same questions comes off much better. Basically, We've a public had, exit interview at that point. Right. This there was no reason to ask those questions with three weeks left in the season on the post game show after the players had just like face planted on that face planted against, I think it was the Rockets. I game. Yeah. Uh, it just, there's no way it could come off well in the locker room. It just reminding me of there've been so many, but it's also the wizards. And this is kind of part of the whole problem with the whole organization. You've had Gortat in November of a season, say we have the worst bench in the NBA. You've had John wall publicly asking for Paul George, which in which not everyone knew what he was suggesting was trade auto Porter for John. Oh, I know for Paul George. Um, and like every time of the trade, every year, the trade deadline also, I think you also had always had John wall saying we need a, a rim runner. He stretch would not four. say like, yeah, he would need a stretch for a rim runner. I mean, it's just so many times that the same thing has happened. 
they don't address the needs. It can't be good for the locker room. It just, it just, it just comes off ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, to me, when I heard that description of like, what do the Wizards need? It's like, yeah, all they need to be good next season is Michael Jordan. Right. <laughs> That's the description, right? Kawhi Leonard, maybe, you know. <laughs> so, okay. A few thoughts. One is active players, like universally through league history, make terrible GMs. They, so especially like the, the, the top players, like the, the guys lower down, but the, the top guys, they think about the game differently than say, uh, because they're thinking in terms of like, when they think of who's difficult to defend, they're usually thinking of terms of like quickness, athleticism, size, strength, because those are things that are like tough. They, they aren't usually thinking about like the skills necessarily or the, the kind of things that actually make make for a win. So hmm. if you get a guy who say, for example, Allen Iverson was a tough cover, but that was because he was so quick and tough and fearless and all those kinds of things. He was a tough cover to, to the players in general. He, he wasn't analytically speaking that tough a cover, right? because he was not an efficient player. He put up a huge volume of numbers. All dominant. Yeah. If you design the team perfectly around him, you could have a pretty good team with him being that ball dominant and that, but it still wasn't a matter of like, Oh, well he's, he's really difficult to defend in the sense that he was still little and he, he still wasn't that great a shooter. Mm-hmm. So it was like, on the other hand, you know, so anyway, so that was my first reaction to it is, is Beal just joins the long list of active star players who are terrible at um, evaluating talent, say deciding what the team needs, because the team needs a whole lot more than that, right? They, they need, they need guard play. They need help at every position on the floor. That's realistic. Yeah. You know, they, they don't have enough talent to be competitive. I'm thinking what Beal still like. So I thought the needs he identified, but I think the level of player he wasn't specific. I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong. So like the way I'm thinking he's viewing it is yes, they need multiple big guards. And this actually leads me to another thing. And he said three and D wings as well. And three and D wings. So I don't disagree with him on any of that. They do need bigger guards. So does every Um, team in the NBA. I think, I think where, where maybe, and I, I, where I would love to know what, maybe a a good follow-up would have been and what I would love to know about it is does he think because I heard Chris Miller on yesterday's post game show and he was saying everything is set they just need a table setter pass first point guard Mm -hmm. I was like no everything's not set now they might view Porzingis Beal Kuzma as a big three and get a pass first point guard around them and look that that might not be a bad team you could be maybe an eight not eight like a six to eight something like that right but if they really want to make a big leap, they need to bring another all-star level talent to the roster. If you bring an all-star level point guard to the team, then you're making a bigger leap. If you bring, I'm just using an example. I'm obviously not these players. If you add a Chris Paul type point guard and a Mikhail Bridges three and D wing, yes, you are better, but those are high quality players. You can't get, you just can't go get. Um, So I think is, I'd wonder what caliber player he thinks they need. I think they need those things, but I don't, I don't think they just need like a, a normal, like an MLE type bigger point guard. They need a difference maker. They need someone who's going to move the needle at those things. They should get that backup guard from Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist that. <laughs> We're going to get to him a little bit here too. In a minute. This is going to be the show full of segues. Uh, yeah, he also talked about wings, which again, like 
all these things you can say, yes, they need. We just, you know, we just hammer that home. Like he, he isn't wrong, but he shouldn't be the guy saying it. If you had Tommy Shepard on even right now to say that, okay, fine. That's but like, fine. Yeah. why, why is the organization doing this? Like they're the hardest team. And I've talked to multiple national media members who try to request interview time with teams. And they said the wizards are historically hard from a media perspective. I have personally experienced this. I've been supposed to have a G league player from the capital city go-go on this team since November. And we still air quotes, haven't been able to make it work out yet. It's so like <laughs> this, this is a propaganda machine who typically says no coverage is good coverage. And they go out of their way to like ostrich their head in the sands. Anytime there's something going on yet routinely we say, oh, here's Bradley Beal. Let's just trot him out there at the end of the year to talk shit about his teammates. Like if I'm if I'm Neto or I'm Ish, I hear that as, hey, I don't want to disrespect my teammates, but they can both get the fuck out of town next season. <laughs> and maybe one of them is back next year. So how do you take that? It, it just it's so stupid to me. It's a lose-lose yeah, to have it's him a lose, lose. One thing I thought also that was interesting is, and I've kind of said his name multiple times on the spot, he's on the team now, so Sadarinsky. He fits a couple of those. He checks a couple of the boxes that Beal mentioned. Taller guard, can make open threes. He's decent catch and shoot. And West Huntsville Jr. Will, Jr. will not play him at point guard. He's using him as a two guard, which he was never really good at. He was always his best basketball when he was at, at a point guard. And I'm not suggesting Sadoransky is the solution at point guard, but he could be a depth play in the future at point guard. So one question I would also ask, ask is, okay, Shepard did one of the things that you like, got a player who checked a couple of those boxes and convinced him to leave Popovich in San Antonio, even though San Antonio was not looking to waive him. He gets over here and West Huntsville Jr. is continuing to play the tiny backcourt. So, so I have no idea what's going on there. If there's like a lack of, what's the word I'm thinking of, Kevin? You're always better, you know, synergy. cohesion, synergy. Yeah, like there's, well, there's, there's something. <laughs> Yeah, the the, th- the point I would make about that is is not like defending Unsell, but I can at least understand his thinking there, and that is that Sadoransky was an effective point guard when he had um, like a really dynamic two guard with him in, as backward. So he was really effective when like Beal was there, and right. because he could keep the ball moving, he could he could initiate the play, he could sort of make sure that the ball got to the got to that guy mm-hmm. um, at at the right spot, or and then he also had the classic three and D wing and not a quarter at the time. Right. And so right. that's when he was most effective. Now with the wizards with, with Beal out and he, I mean, he's got Corey Kispert as the, as the two guard and Kispert's playing better. He's shooting all better, but he's, yeah. he's really like a three point specialist. He's not like a well-rounded all around player at this point. And maybe he never will be, but so I can sort of see um, unselled saying, okay, I don't have any guards on this team. <laughs> Let me, I, I, he's kind of forced to play Smith and Meadow. And I mean, yeah, he could play Sadoransky at point guard, but it's not really like an ideal setup, setup for him to do what, what he actually is effective at doing, which is sort of facilitating somebody like a Beal or um, yeah. Levine. Um, and I get that, but what Neto's doing is not ideal to anyone's eyesight. So. No, I mean, <laughs> and same, same with Ish. It's like, I, yeah. <laughs> And I remember, and look, I'm not trying to get this into a Rui thing, uh, because that's that's for you and Ron. But um, <laughs> there was, I think, Kevin Foley did a pretty good job posting film the day after a game. He was showing, I think it was early against Houston, where after Rui had gone three for three, and he's wide open on the wing at the three-point line early in the game, after he just made three in a row. And he's waving for the ball, 
and Neto decides to go one on one versus uh, is it Deshaun Tate? Is that his name? Deshaun. Yeah. And Tate absolutely destroys the basketballs, like like blocks it right back in the Neto's face. There's a one foot advantage, and I'm like, what is Neto doing? This is just like a rational okay, confidence, this, baby. If this is what West Huntsville Jr. wants to see, because like he thinks his point guards have to score, let fine. Let's let let season just end this way and. Hopefully we could get all the way to the eighth or seventh spot before the lottery. <laughs> hey, that's Brazilian Allen Iverson you're talking about. Be careful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But fortunately, as Wes pointed out two games ago, he has no plans to change the starting point guard spot at this time. So I mean, and he's the tank commander. Just roll right. with it. Uh, all right. So the other thing Brad talked about, he was on the Draymond Green show. Just guy, the guys making the rounds this week. He wishes that the Wizards were a more attractive free agency destination because DC is a great sports town. But he knows that the lack of winning and history of locker room drama has hurt them and alludes that trade is the most likely avenue of adding talent, which to me says goodbye, Denny, goodbye, Rui, goodbye, Kuzma, goodbye, some probably two of the three of you at the very least. Again, it just strikes me as tone deaf. You've been here. You've played a large part into the recent history of lack of winning. And you have played a recent part in the history of locker room drama in the last several years. How much of a part? I don't know. But he wasn't an active deterrent of said drama, which you would hope your Supermax guy is able to help sort of, you know, help people get along. He's certainly at the very least, at best, a neutral presence. Again, like, stop. Just stop talking about it. Like, it just, I don't know. As fans, it just, it, it. There's no way to read that and be like, yeah, Brad's right. We do suck. And sh- no one wants to come to this shithole. Like, <laughs> what what good does that do you? Yeah. So it, it, to me, it I would have been okay with it if, if it had been more, if there had been, I guess, a little more self-reflection. Mm-hmm. If, if it had been, you know, him talking about, I haven't done and then, or mm-hmm. talking about his own leadership, because Draymond is a great place to do that, right? Um, so if if it had been more of that, mm-hmm. I, I really would have been okay with it. But totally agree. It's yeah. I mean, it's always them, uh, or so at best, we. It's never I. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like what what he what he was doing was basically being Captain Obvious and mm-hmm. just saying what everybody knows and can yeah. see. And I mean, and he's right in the sense that yeah, DC should be a great destination for a, an athlete. It's a it's a great market. It's a big market. It's relatively untapped. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, the organization itself. I mean, they've got great facilities. Um, that they have money to if they choose to spend it. And so, um, and, and I'm talking about not necessarily cap money. I'm talking about money to invest in you know facility services for the players, that kind of thing. So sure, yeah, it, that's true. But the fact is that it, it's been a poorly run organization for decades. The culture there stinks and has stunk, and the star players have really done nothing except exacerbate that over the last decade. <laughs> They've been in the league, and I'm going to deal with that. So yeah. yeah, there were. I mean, there's just a couple. Uh, there are a few ways to kind of view that. Yes, their history plays a role, and I think it, even if you take this like decades of history because they have not been relevant. I'm sure that has something to do with it. You also have, you have a lack of success. So that, that plays a role, but a few other things again, like, like Kevin was saying, and I don't need to reiterate, he's said it perfectly. Um, while 
like Wall and Beal and all, they've had a part of that. Wall would, would say, I'm not going to help recruit. I, I'm not the type. People should see what I do and want to play with me. I don't have to recruit. That's what he used to always say. Um, Beal has been the leader of the team the last three to four, four years now. Shepard's been here three years, I think. So about like four years since Wall's injury first occurred. So everything that's happened now is under his watch. So yeah, self-reflection would have been great. But also this organization never sets it up itself up to be a free agent player. If they consistently had cap space and were always trying, I look, were the Nationals a free agent destination when they got Jason Worth? No, but they kept trying and overpaid someone just to kind of make us make a point that we have to land somebody. And like it, it ended up paying off long term because it kind of puts you on the map a little bit. The Wizards never have cap space. The Wizards always trade away their cap space. I think Ernie, Ernie Grenfell called it, it may, it may have been him or someone involved in the organization. Basically, what they do is they take their cap space that they may have and trade it in for, trade it in for certainty. Instead of going to the uncertainty of the market, except for this 2016 season, they trade that in so they could say, hey, I've got Nene Ariza. I've got, like, this is what we already got. They're under contracts. We've already, you know, we've done our spending by trading. And when you do that, yeah, you get decent players. Like they got, like Nene and Ariza were solid players for them. And other instances when they've traded cap space, they've gotten solid players, but you're never taking a big swing. You're never actually getting in the market. So if you're never in the market, when you finally do show up in 2016, Surprise, surprise, you don't land land Al Horford. That's just how it works. Yeah. So a, a couple of thoughts there. And that and, and so one is it, it sort of underscores the team's ability to always take the wrong lesson from something. And so their lesson from 2016 is we can't trust free agency. We can't, you know, go into free agency in a situation where, you know, with like and chase because they they won't pick up. When what the evaluation should be is our strategy was fucked up. Yeah, we have right? to get better people. <laughs> right. So the, the whole strategy when they hatched it in 2014, of we're going to have max cap space in 2016 was stupid because they knew that the new TV deal was coming. They had early knowledge that the new TV deal was coming because Ted Leonsis was part of the owner's committee yeah. that negotiated the new deal. So they knew every detail of that. They knew the cap was going to spike. They may have thought that there would be, you know, cap smoothing and that kind of stuff, but they, they, there should have been a plan around that. And in 2014, 2015, I mean, Ben Becker said on my an early version of my podcast that the Wizards would be smart to start acquiring players under, under contract going in because guys who were under contract who had signed before 2016 would be bargains instantly because of the massive amount of revenue that was coming in. Yeah. And, and you sell them all for parts, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Or you, you use them, sure. right? If, because if, then yeah, you're right. undervalued. And then you can do things like say what Golden State did, which is go out and you sign Kevin Durant because you right. have max cap space all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. And so the point here being that the evaluation should have been to go back and look at their strategy and say, okay, we miscalculated. We screwed up the strategy and we got this wrong and it hurts. And not to say, well, free agency doesn't work <laughs> because <laughs> it's that crazy. I mean, they literally plan to have max caves, max catch space for an off season in which everyone in the right. league, half the league had max catch space. And they, they were terrified to 
offer Ariza a little more than Houston to make sure they got him. I think he signed for $8 million a year in Houston. He, at that point, he was an effective player. He was a very good player. He went on to ha- play a big role for Houston. That contract, let's just say if they had upped the offer to $9 million just to get him signed, would have been very tradable, and he would have been a very effective player for them for the next three to four years. Yeah, he would have. If they had to get off it, they could have gotten off it. Otherwise, he would have been a bargain that would have been attractive as a trade chip. Exactly, exactly. And, I mean, they did match the Houston's offer in terms of the dollar amount, but in in Texas, there's no... Right. uh, Like, yeah, if you like you said, like if they had just gone to, say, 10 a year, if they had given him four four for 40, very tradable, very good player... Yeah. And they ended up trying to chase what they just got rid of for years. Yeah. And they wouldn't have needed to trade Uber. If they back, yeah. <laughs> they just do the wrong thing repeatedly. Like should have traded Bertans at the deadline. It's not a retrospect thing. Pretty much your entire fan base was saying trade Bertans at the deadline. Right. The end. Or sign and trade him somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Dinwiddie thing, like it, it didn't work out. Like I thought he would be better here than he was. And, and we can see that. He actually has the ability to be better here, you know, better than he was here. But at the same time, you know, the three of us talked about this two months ago, their expectation for what they were bringing in did not match what the player actually does. And by the way, what he's doing there is not what they wanted him to do here. So I I still fault Dinwiddie in that too, but this is a point Oz made a lot too. Like the organization is not absolved of any wrongdoing because maybe Dinwiddie wasn't getting along with people or whatever. Like he, he did his thing, but this is a total failure across the board. And yeah. again, this is a PR failure by letting Brad go out and say these things. And then he talked about, uh, you know, after the events of summer 2020 management knew that, that we were done and we had to break up the John wall pairing and quote, it was out of my hands. I was coming to camp thinking John was ready to go. If I could go back, I wish we'd have had one more shot at it. One more shot at what? I don't know. <laughs> One more year yeah. to play together and lose in the first round. Like, so be it. Wall hasn't been healthy. Like, whether it was the gang stuff or not, like the gang sign stuff or not, like it, it probably was the right move. But when you do that, you still, like, I gave Tommy Shepard a lot of credit for turning Wall into Westbrook and Westbrook into Kuzma and cap flexibility and potentially pieces you could have sold off at this year's trade deadline, which he chose not to do for some mysterious reason so but at a certain point you have to get all those other moves around it right or it becomes meaningless and they have not had a particularly good track record since the draft picks are marginal like i i like them better than some but i'm not saying that they hit home runs here i like kuzma better than some but it's at best like a decent move you know what i mean like he's a he's a good addition to the team he's not your savior like you had to get Dinwiddie right. You had to get Bertans right. They've gotten nothing right. And like the revisionist shit about Wall now, like Wall doesn't get traded if Beal's not okay with it. And anyone who thinks differently is fooling themselves. This team has done everything that Beal wants. They didn't just surprise John's gone. Like you're full of shit if you think that that's what took place. Sorry. Yeah. I, and I think, sorry, circling back to the Dinwiddie thing real quick, which also ties into this. I think it, that is a, an instance where they had to recruit a free agent. Because yes, it was done via sign and trade, but they had, he was a free agent and they had to recruit him and kind of sell him on, on the Wizards. So there may be some residual or some fallout from having a player come in and having to trade him away so quickly. They, like, I'm not sure, but it does not look good at, for, the, for the Wizards, for Beal, that it went bad with Dinwiddie so quickly. 
and that the one free agent that they really kind of were able to bring in who had no ties, prior ties to the organization was run off after about 40 games. Uh, but kind of going with the other point, yeah, this is a lot of it is all revisionist. Um, they were, when Ernie Grunfeld got fired, they had a 410 winning percentage and now we're three years later and their winning percentage is 470. Like yeah, right. We, we haven't, they haven't, so they've three, and it's three full seasons now. Like it doesn't seem like it, but it's been three full seasons. And so what can you say that they've accomplished? And the answer is really, so yeah. And as I was thinking about that, because someone on Twitter today was like, oh, you've gone to the negative pool, like the negative way. I'm like, no, it's like their sample. It's a three-year sample size where their win percentage has gone up by 0.007%. So, and what can you tangibly say they've, they've added? Mm-hmm. Um, especially kind of, I'm thinking kind of in Beal's mind where Beal thinks he has like, you know, like is that big three that they have is not a big three. It's a medium three at best. They don't have any of the parts around it that he wants, and they don't have the assets players to get those parts. So where, and we're really going into year four of this, where we have no idea who the point guard is going to be. We have no idea. Probably we don't even have, I would guess, three members of next year's backcourt on the team. We don't know who the starting small forward on the team is. We have no idea how all those parts are going to mesh together. So there's, and there's going to be no continuity because Beal's never played with Porzingis. Porzingis played maybe what, 30 minutes with Kuzma before Kuzma's knee flared up. Mm -hmm. And who knows if Porzingis is going to be available to start the season with his health. It's all over the place. I mean, I still like his talent, but there it's going to be year four, another brand new, what is going to, how is this thing going to fall like work with an upside that's not that high anyways. So and then kind of going to the other thing about wall, like that's completely, I mean, I'm not get, like, who knows? I wasn't there, but kind of piecing it together or like David Aldridge wrote this also right after the trade, he said they chose Beal over wall mm-hmm. and eventually it was always going to be Beal or wall, not both together. And David Aldridge doesn't typically just throw out stuff to throw out stuff. Like a lot of, if, if Beal really wanted wall on the team, I would think that he could have at least talked to ownership and said something. But then remember, Beal also last year with Westbrook said, this is my best teammate ever. Like, that's what he said last Mm -hmm. year. So now he's saying, oh, I wish I could run it back with Wall one more time. It's just going to keep changing. So the the stuff with Wall, I mean, I think, Matt, you described it as revisionist history, and it it definitely is. There was drama. They they didn't, there were times where they did not get along. That's not abnormal. You know, a lot of guys are, are like that. Not every, like, Star pairing is like Giannis and Chrysanthemus, right? Where they, they it doesn't mean they hate each other. Like no one's yeah. trying to say that. It just it works. You know, it ended its ran its course. Yeah, there's disputes and stuff. But so anyway, like I said, that's all revisionist. One of the things that's really kind of silly about it all is that when Wall played last year, he was really mediocre. I mean, yeah. like he 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 wasn't good. Um, he's not what he was um, at his peak. It's been a long time since he played that well. And so the idea of running it back, it's like. Or what would have been the I mean, exact he, same he, outcome? Let's put it this way: Wall last season was about as good as Dinwiddie was this season for the Wizards. Okay, so you know, not terrible, but he's also like not good. At it. So that's number one. Now, um, as you guys know, my my day job is in public relations, media relations, that kind of stuff, and so I just have to say that Beal going out doing two interviews, fine, right? You can do that, but. One of the things you do when you are like an in-house communications, PR, media relations person. So in other words, 
the Wizards have that staff. They've got people who do that job. Is that you don't let a spokesperson for your organization go out without knowing what to say, right? And so you you give them talking points. You do mock interviews. Topics are agreed to ahead of time. You know the whole outline. And so and and you prepare them for if they ask you a question, especially on live TV, right? If they ask you a question that we haven't prepared you for, that we don't want you to answer, like don't answer it. Answer a different question. And I'm a bullshit fake answer. As I prepared, I've prepared hundreds of spokespersons to give interviews. I've given interviews myself, right? And so, especially on live TV, you know, somebody asks you a question that you don't like or that you don't want or it's poorly framed or doesn't give you an opportunity to deliver the message that you are there to deliver, you change the question. You change it into what you want. You say, that's interesting. And then you talk about something completely different. Right? You can do that. Politicians do it all the time. Is it maddening? Sure, can be. But this the is reason not they do it, yeah. right? This is not life and death stuff. So, um, anyway, just, just on that, real quick, Kev, let's try this in real time here. Right? You guys ready for this, Kevin? You are the deputy editor in chief of Bull Trevor, a really great website. What do you need staff wise to make this website so much better in the next year? Go. Uh, we have uh, Bullets Forever, number one. It's a great site. Lots of uh, great content that we put out every year. And we have such a, a talented group of writers and content producers that are already on this, on this uh, you know, on our team. And, um, you know, what we're going to do, we're just going to keep developing. We have great camaraderie <laughs> and great, great synergy. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to you know, look for ways to increase our collaboration and to work together and come up with some really creative ways to put out some new content. You could also say you need a taller social media manager. I'm only 5'8". That's all good. You can say it. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get this Moderno guy's dead weight out of here. You know, he shoots too much. He doesn't defend. Look, here's what we need. We need somebody who is like a great writer, great access, great sources, and, um, you know, who can who can get in. And basically, I've just described Zach Lowe. Right. <laughs> we, we need at least one person who can dot, dot, dot. And that means yeah. we don't have any of those people. It's not <laughs> we want to augment the staff. Uh, yeah. All right. See, folks, that's how it's done. When you have a trained media professional. <laughs> Again, nobody's expecting Gil to be perfect with these answers. It, it's just someone from the team should be attached to his hip and knees, like waving their hands wildly when certain answers are going to be perceived certain ways. Because this is clickbait. And everyone says this bullshit because you took it out of context. That's the media now. And that's what real PR teams train yeah. you to not give sound bites. Like, yeah. so you can defend him all you want. Oh, it's not really what he meant. But that's why you don't say it. Yeah. Well, and I, I happen to know that they had, uh, the Wizards had a, or Monumental Sports had a, a, a you know, high level communications role that was open and they canceled the position um, the, uh, over the summer. So um, I don't know what that means. I guess maybe they were satisfied with what they had. But I actually wanted to go back to the, to the comments about record, you know, 410 or 417. By the end of the season, they'll probably be around 410. But um, the, the thing is, it, one of the reasons why I think the results haven't changed is the organizational goals haven't changed, right? So with, with Grunfeld, the, the, the order was make the playoffs, right? And so they had these little catchphrases, we're going to contend for the playoffs, Right. Yeah. Which I've, I've written about this. I've talked about this before, but it's worth just reiterating is at no point in my you know life watching sports with any team ever did somebody talk about contending for the playoffs. Maybe the closest would be the NFL back when like 
you know, half the league didn't make the playoffs, but um, nobody talked about contending for the playoffs, certainly in the NBA, right? They, the, the conversation was always about, if you use the word contend, you meant for a championship, right? And the Wizards turned it into, we're going to contend for eighth. Um, so that's the, the, they still have the same goals. The, the deal that they made to get Porzingis is the same thing. Now, I, I, have, I was actually kind of okay with that. Uh, with when making the deal for Prezegas yep. because, you know, we've, we've talked about that. But the point is, is that the results don't change because the goals are the same. Yeah, agreed. And it's it's interesting because when Shepard first came in, he said, I don't want to chase an eighth seed. That was one of his first interviews. It was with The Athletic. Remember, Fred oh, Cassidy wrote it. Tenth. Yeah, now he's chasing 10. So somewhere over, like, it, it, when he first came in, that's what was refreshing. He was like, first time someone's saying that's not good enough. But very quickly, once he had the pressure of the Beal extension hanging over his head every season, and uh, I'm sure other organizational pressure, that those those posts changed, and now it's be competitive enough to make Bradley Beal sign Stay an extension. Yeah. So that which is not the same. So three years later, if we're being honest, and if Beal's being honest with himself, they have they have not shown that. Hmm. But. And look, this is what athletes do. And I like when people criticize athletes for having confidence in themselves, I actually don't, it kind of doesn't irritate me, but I, what are they supposed I, I think to say? people don't get it. Like, what are they supposed to say? Like, um, like there's always ridiculous stuff. Like when Marcus Morris after the fact is saying we would have won in the bubble. It's like, no, you, every team was in a bubble. You lost, you know, it's like, no, that's not the same as, but that's not the same as saying, Hey, I believe when I'm on the court, we are a 51 team because pe- athletes to get to that level have, an insane amount of confidence in themselves. So I completely understand that. Um, And I think it's ridiculous when people kind of just jump on guys for like, do they want to be able to say, no, I think we're an 11 seed. He's not never going to say that. That said, he also said, and so in the Draymond interview, he was very much, I want to stay. I want to build it here. I want to do it here. Not saying that he did not say that. He's always said that been consistent. And I believe in when he says that he also said, I want to play in mid to late June. And if he is being honest with himself and if the organization is being honest with themselves, they are nowhere close to playing in June, unless this, the calendar changes again, like it did a few years, like last year. Playing so that's May not going to be an achievement. Yeah. May would be an achievement. I mean, their season is going to be over in two weeks and we're in March right now. Yeah. They're nowhere near that. So, and he is going to be entering his 10th or 11th season next season. So it's like they're chasing something that they've made no progress towards. And if they want to continue doing it fine, but that's why like, you know, like you just can't run it back and they're not, they, they have not run it back because there's so much roster turnover every year, but they've run it back with a similar upside. Like they, they've run it back with different faces, different names, different names on the back of the jerseys, all shooting for the same play in spot. You got to try something bigger. Even if you fail, you got to just try something bigger. (laughs) And this is, this is one of the problems with the, the tactic of trading right? Is that if, if you're trading, you're automatically, you're giving stuff up, right? And in fact, that's also can be an issue with, um, you know, signing a name brand free agent, as Ted once said. And that is like, for example, when they traded for Bertot, that was the trade itself was, was you know, was fine. If we won't get into all that, but like when they, they were talking about the potential to have cap space in that offseason. But the only way you get that cap space to go out and sign a name brand free agent was not to resign Archie Cortat, right? And so you have to you have to give up guys to, to bring in players. The only place you can really add to your roster is either um, 
you know, signing somebody who is like cheap, you know, you, you've got guys that you want to get rid of and you're signing them to free agency or you're drafting. If you're trading, you can win a trade. You can give up less than what the player you're getting is worth if you're able to identify those kinds of players. But trading in it by its nature, I mean, the Wizards gave up, uh, you know, Dinwiddie and Bertans for Porzingis. Now, the, the Wizards may end up winning that trade, although uh, Dinwiddie looks pretty good for Dallas. So Bertans has ter- been terrible there. But, um, you know, the point being that anytime you're making a trade, you trade, you decide you want a Trevor Ariza, they had to give up Kelly Oubre. So, you know, anyway, that's the challenge with trading is that you're ultimately, it's it's just become circular economy. You're you may make incremental improvements, but unless unless you're trading like nothing, basically, if you're trading like a uh, future draft capital that or you can't tap into yet. Yeah. Or, or it has a risk, but like, you know, but yeah, you're not, you're not actually adding to the team. You're not enhancing anything. You're just taking maybe incre- incremental steps forward. You know, or you're, you're trading guys like, you know, you're trading guys you, that you don't want in right. for example, or you're trading somebody who is a little older um, and you're basically, you're trading present for future Yeah, know, that you can do. So like, for example, if they were to trade Beal, they would probably get a lot of draft capital and maybe some young players. And then you're subtracting, certainly, you're giving something up, but at least then you're you're bringing in assets, future assets, and you know that, that you can maybe do something with. Yeah. Try if with Beal, I think the only real avenue to a, a franchise-altering difference maker is just they need to get lucky in the draft. They need to get lucky in the Gotta lottery, the lottery, and they need yeah. to... And wherever they land, they have to hit a home run. They can't look. Kispert's been a fine player. He's been solid. He's done exactly, I think, what people projected him to do. And there's no reason to think he can't be a rotational guy. But it wasn't a big swing. They weren't. They weren't getting anyone that's changing the balance of this franchise. So they have to, like, you know, if they like, they have to get as high as they can so that their floor is higher or lower, depending on how you view the draft, but they, you want to pick at a certain range where you're going to get a high-end talent and you got to swing for it. You can't trade that for the certainty of a point guard to put around them, around the current team, because then you're taking a shortcut. You're not going to get a star point guard for the, your lottery pick. You're their star. If they, They've been chasing the star via trade for years, or at least saying that they have been. Like they've tried for Jimmy Butler. They've tried for Paul George. They never, I don't think they were ever really close, but they've tried. It's never happened. It's not going to happen via trade. So if they ever want to get a star, it has to happen in the lottery. And if it's going to happen around Beal, really, it's all going to come down to this lottery because how many more years can they keep pushing it off? But that's the problem with part of Beal's comments too. He talked about the, like a trade being the only way for them to atta- acquire more talent. He's having these conversations with Tommy Shepard about the plan for the team, yeah. how to build the team. So I can promise you, if he's saying that, it's not a wildly different approach than what Tommy Shepard thinks they're doing for team building. And so there we are. So that's where they think. Well, we're going to take the guys we have now and we're somehow going to magically turn them into star power and we'll just replace them, which, you know, sometimes you shuffle the deck and you end up with better cards. Like, uh, I'm okay with that. But again, to your point, it's not going to be a drastic ceiling mover. And yeah. If let's say you end up with the fourth pick in the draft, you take Shaden Sharp and he turns into Kobe, RIP Kobe, like that's your chance. Like that, that yeah. that's that's the only way that you get out of purgatory here. Like that's it. And yeah. here's the thing though. I mean, one of the and this is where their timeline doesn't make a lot of sense. It's so okay, you get that pick, you get this this kid. When when does he turn into Kobe? Because Kobe didn't right. turn into Kobe 
until four. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, his fourth year, right? And so by then, what Beal is now twenty eight. So by then, he's thirty two, and he's basically on his way out. Yeah. I mean, younger guys can make an impact earlier, right? Like you look at that Boston team, like Tatum and Brown and those guys were pretty young and and they made a good run. Like, even if he's like a marginally impactful starter the first year, like it's still, it still gives you something. I mean, like LeBron was basically the average his first year, right? A little better, (laughs) but basically the average. And then obviously got better. Like, I guess what my concern is like, if you go into the top four and Jaden Ivey's there, I think even Beal would recognize we have to take Jaden Ivey because he's on a rookie contract, has a very high ceiling. Where, I, where I'm a little worried is what if they get around eight or nine, which uh, and all of a sudden Indiana calls offering Malcolm Brogdon for the ninth pick. They're going to okay. trade. I, like, yeah. I, and you're, you're going to trade a Benedict Matherin. You're going to trade a Johnny Davis, a 19-year-old for a 30-year-old who probably takes you from their current 12th seed to like a ninth seed next year. And what are you really accomplishing? You're not accomplishing anything. You're actually hindering the franchise long-term. In my opinion, at least. Post-trade. That's my concern. Hopefully it just doesn't happen that way, but that's my huge concern. Post-trade deadline, Tommy talked about, there were deals that they tried to make at the deadline that didn't get done, that they were very willing to revisit this summer. And we know very clearly that they talked to Indiana for a large portion leading up to that trade deadline. You've yeah. got Beal saying that they want bigger guards. They want mm-hmm. bigger guards that can shoot. And you've got Beal saying that acquiring talent is going to happen via trade. So if this lottery pick gets turned into some reasonable starter, a, a la Malcolm Brogdon, you know, like he's a better player when he's healthy, but he's not always yeah. healthy. Like, don't be surprised by that. Like, I'm, that, yeah. that's all I'm saying. The one thing I will say, though, to Shepard's, I don't know if it's defense or not, but just to Shepard's, what Shepard's done, he never really trades much for what he gets which is probably indicative or reflective in terms of what he gets back in return. But he trades, he's, it's like, he is looking for distressed assets. Mm-hmm. He's looking for a team that will give someone away just because they don't like them. They're fit there. So he, he got Bertans for free. He got, did he get CJ miles in a trade? I think he got, he CJ did. Miles. I think that miles was on the team briefly. I think he, yeah, I mean, he got injured once he got here, Played but I think he traded. Here, yeah. He was supposed to actually start that year, but I think he traded nothing for him. Uh, I mean, the rights to. Here's the thing: CJ Miles by then was. But it was done. Yeah, was but like his his kind of mo is like he he traded really nothing. Like he got Dinwiddie in the deal, just yeah. by. Well, somebody like looked better in a change of scenery. Yeah. Right, that's what he's chasing. He's not chasing something that you actually have to trade something of value for. I, I'm sure with Sabonis, he was offering something of value to Indiana and it just wasn't enough, which isn't sure. surprising. Now, I guess my question is like for a Brogdon who, who is, I'm sure Indiana wants to pivot to Halliburton because the more Brogdon has the ball, the less Halliburton has it. So I think they want to pivot there. They have Duarte in the backcourt. Maybe that's like a, a buy low scenario for mm-hmm. him. So I, I'm sure, I guess my hope in that scenario is that Tommy Shepard is just the annoying person who like in your fantasy league just calls you or texts you every hour saying, let's do the trade. Let's do the trade. Let's do the trade. Let's offer you nothing. crap. Yeah. And you finally just do it just to get him off your back. Yeah. So as long as I've known Tommy, which is now like 18 years or so, but he's always talked about how deals that get talked about at the trade deadline often get done during the offseason. So um, that that's a pretty standard talking point from them. But I mean, Indiana is interesting. So number one, Brogdon is good. I mean, if the Wizards end up with like the 10th, 12th pick, whatever, and they um, trade that for Brogdon, you know, okay. 
because the 10th, 12th pick is going to take a few years before they become like mediocre. 12th right? pick and Denny, let's talk. Yeah. Ninth pick, Kuzma, Rui, Todd. No, I'd give up. I'd give up Hachimura in a second to to yeah, and I'm pick. saying like a and collection now of those in, Ron. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that um, would be a nice segue to have like a Ron Amori type thing where Ron slides in right after you say that. Yeah, he's like, what were you saying? No, Ron. Ron is definitely he he, he likes Hachimura quite a bit. So, but um, really, if we look at it, Indiana is following the uh, route that the Wizards should be. Right. I mean, they, they traded a younger all-star, a younger and you know more productive all-star, frankly, than, than what the Wizards have to get Halliburton basically to to reboot, to you know, reconfigure their roster. Extend the timetable, all that stuff. Yeah, because now like Halliburton is much more aligned. Miles Turner now has the, the, the center position basically to himself. You know, he, he doesn't have to share. There's none of that awkward fit there between him and, and Savonis. You know they've got Brogdon. They can trade him, or they can play him in in the in a backcourt with you know that's a nice three guard uh, rotation with Halliburton, Duarte, and, and Brogdon if they just choose to go that route. But they're going to trade him because they're trying to get younger, and they'll, they'll end up with I mean whoever they end up with will fit their timeline a lot better. Right. And, um, you know we're going to build around Halliburton Turner. Their their own pick is going to be like a top five, top six pick. Yeah. So yeah. they're quickly have pivoted to rebuild mode. Yeah. And, but it's, and they'll be, and they're not going to be any worse next season than they are this season. Right. So they're going, they're likely to be better. And like I said, this is, this is basically the route the Wizards should have done probably two years ago mm-hmm. um, in terms of trading Beal. But, but Kev, quickly on Rui, his PPA jumped to 90. He is getting close to 100, <laughs> at which point we will be celebrating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, back like his rookie year, I think he was like one of those. 4105, somewhere in there. I was hoping you could top that. Okay, fine. All right, let's take a quick break from the show to hear from another one of our sponsors, Athletic Greens. Tons of people take multivitamins, but it's important to choose one that is top quality. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day right. Their special blend of ingredients supports gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy recovery, focus, and aging. It's also lifestyle-friendly and fits a wide range of diets. There's only one gram of sugar and no chemicals or artificial anything. Reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash belief. That's B-L-E-A-V. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash belief. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. Now let's get back to the show. I don't want to keep you guys forever. I do want to hit on Wes Unselled real quick. And I have literally a whole page of talking points here that I want to destroy through at some point, maybe closer to the offseason. But we'll save those. So this isn't a three-hour podcast. But I do want to just touch on one thing with Wes. After last night's game, which we talked about at the beginning here, he said, we did not have the right approach. I don't think we were ready to play. And then also talked about like guys not being in sync, guys having not bought in and and all those types of things again. And we keep hearing that. And again, I literally have a whole page of stupid quotes about the guys sort of not being on the same page and, and guys not wanting it. Um, I, I, the one I want to read, is it like just particularly 
frustrating to me as a human being to hear them talk about. But he talked about it's not schematic, the defensive issues. Some of those things are the want, the care, and the urgency. And we just don't see it from guys right now. That's your whole job in the NBA is to get guys to want to give a shit. Like the schemes aren't drastically different unless you're like some genius savant. But for the most part, almost everything teams do is is the same. Like the, the goals are the same. How you do it is the same. The personnel mm-hmm. is different. And the motivation of that personnel is what changes. And the best NBA coaches are the ones that get like that extra couple percent out of guys. So if you're repeatedly yeah. saying, our guys were not ready to play tonight. And that's why we got punched in the mouth. And you've been doing that the whole season. First quarters have been shit. Third quarters have been shit. Like, what are you doing? And this would have been better with all the full things here because he talks about his whole job is to build relationships and get guys to trust him and all this shit. Like, I'm sure Wes is a perfectly fine coach. I'm sure what he runs is great. I'm sure what he comes up with is great. But I'm questioning Wes, the motivator. And again, they don't have a lot to play for right now. Like, I, I totally get it. I, I'm not an idiot on the losing team. Guys aren't going to try to play like they're trying to win the NBA championship. But you just then can't come out and say, I don't know what happened. Uh, for some reason, we weren't ready. Like, yeah, you're the reason. Like, that's it. Sorry. I'm, I'm I, up. So, I yeah, with Wes Lonsold, Quinn Mayo asked a couple of days ago, what would you grade him? And I gave him a C only because he was a first year head coach. Sure. If he was a second or third year that, guy, but... I would give him a D or less. Sure. I was not a Scott Brooks fan, but with at all. And I was perfectly fine with the decision for him not to come back. That said, I don't recall this team over the past three years ever really quitting on Scott Brooks. Every time they were, I was like, yes, they're going to get in like a top four lottery position and a schedule, the schedule looked brutal. They somehow started winning games they and it would, yeah. it would be yes. On one hand, like part of me was like, yes, that's, you know, what a great win. On the other hand, I was like, how are they doing this every season? So he would somehow get his team to respond. Like they never quit on him. And I'm not saying they quit on Wes Hansel Jr., but they are not. They not are rallying not around him. Yeah. They're not rallying around him. They're not competing. They have, they, there is some level of tune out that's definitely occurred. I, I can't quantify that or anything, but that's, that's definitely occurred. And, and, when you hear, I watched, I've been watching more and more of the post game to see his comments and they're all the same. It's always like, mm-hmm. we need to have a sense of urgency. We need to play the right way. Those were nice things to hear when he first took the job and because those were accurate. Um, but you can only hear a person talk about systems so much. Like I can imagine, I imagine putting myself in that locker room. And if I hear the head coach talking about, we got to play the right way. We got to play system. We got to have a sense of urgency for six months. I'm tuning out also. It's like, oh my God, I can't listen to this anymore. It's like, let us just play ball. And it's like, you also can't keep talking about, it was the Nuggets game a few weeks, a couple weeks ago. He keeps talking about urgency. And I noticed at the beginning of that game, Denver kept hunting switches on Neto. And I know I pick on Neto, but it is what it is. His play speaks for itself. Aaron Gordon got switched up on Neto like three times to open the game. So they had eight of their first 10 points were on Howell Neto, like either via switch or just someone shooting on top of him. So how could you... Tell your players, hey, I want you to play with a sense of urgency when you're not coaching with a sense of urgency, when you're allowing a player that's being hunted to just stay on the floor, start every single game. Now, uh, that's one part of it. And then the other part is like another, like I think Matt, you and I have talked about this. I don't know what's going on, but everything seems so system oriented. Like there's, they're, ter- they're dead last in fast break points. They're second to last in three point field goal attempts. 
there's no free flowing style to what they're doing. And it's just, you know, there needs to be, I'm not sure what the adjustments are going to be, but, but Wes has to make some adjustments this offseason. So X is a no, he's, he's fine. I mean, like you said, everybody knows this stuff and he prepares uh, and, and know is probably like certainly top half in, in terms of knowledge. I think It's more than Scott mm-hmm. Brooks was doing in terms of like game planning for stuff. Yeah. The, the thing with Brooks is he said, it's not, it's not just that the team never quit. It's that like while Brooks got lots of criticism and you know people made fun of his various things, he kept finding ways to make things work. Like for example, playing three centers, right? None of them were really much yeah. good. And yet somehow by playing each of them for 18 minutes a game or 16 minutes a game, whatever the, the, the numbers are, somehow it, it became effective. It was like by the time somebody got used to, uh, you know, Lopez, Captain Hook, you know, throwing in hooks, it was like, then there's Gafford dunking on their heads. And then there's like Alex Lang coming in to like knock you on your ass. And it's like, it's it was just this constant change, this swirl of like, these, these weird, awkward, goofy people. It made them hard to game plan against too, because you yeah. could just then, you know, I mean, rotate he, the deck. He basically played Neto as like a six foot small forward, and yet somehow they went on a winning streak, right? So, and that's because he he could still inspire. So anyway, to the point I was making, going to really going to make here is that in terms of motivation, the coaches have like there's the personal charisma, right? give the speeches, you can have relationships, you can inspire guys to play harder, right? That's one way of doing it. The other way, and that sort of goes hand in hand, is the the the, the currency in the NBA, and that is playing time. Mm-hmm. And if you stick to the same rotation, if you have quote unquote no plans to change the point guard, if you have ne- if you basically never change your lineup unless somebody gets hurt, well, you don't you, you're not using that currency. To get guys. You need competition not, there or yeah. threat of competition. Right. It's like, okay, um, think about like, I mean, this is probably isn't the greatest example, but I'm thinking about when the Clippers made that huge comeback and they came out in the second half and they started basically all the bench guys. Yeah, they right? were hungry. Yeah. Right? And those bench guys wanted to play. But the thing is, is like Lou, I mean, he did later after the game say, well, we were punting the game. We, <laughs> we were just going to rest our top guys for the next game is, is what he said. And it turns out that these younger guys who were just, they were like, this is great. We get to play. And they went out and played. Right. So the other thing is, is that coaches, there are lots of examples of coaches who are able to get like young guys or get their teams to compete even in a lost season. I mean, to be honest, like Oklahoma city, you watch them play this season those guys play hard. Um, you know, you, Houston is not an example of that. They take games off, but Detroit is playing really hard right now. Like Cade right. is winning games by himself at the end. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, the thing I was going to say is that there is actually an example of like a coach for the, for the, this franchise. And that's Wes Unsell's dad. Yeah. Right. They suck. Wes was the coach. The team sucked hard. Yeah. The talent sucked, but man, they were fun to watch because those guys just, they, they fought. I mean, you had Charles Jones, who, you know, was was small and slow and weak, and and uh, <laughs> you know, he battled, he battled, he tried. Yeah, they, they lost. They were in every game until they would lose with two minutes left. But given their talent level, it was commendable. You know, right? So, I mean, so I mean, it's it's possible to get guys to to, to play hard, but you have to 
be persuasive and you have yeah. to use the carrot stick of playing them. What, what I've noticed, and also I so just take it back to what we've seen in the NBA this week. You have, obviously they have more equity, they have more cachet, whatever word you want to use is, but Spolstra took on the team star player. Yeah, very the, publicly. Live in the, very publicly. Uh, Malone saw two baskets get given up against the Wizards in a 20-point lead, immediately got furious, called a timeout. Malone I, I tried to Kevin fight the Marcus Cousins once. Like, think yeah. about what you, kind of crazy MF exactly. you got to like, And some of it is also, like, uh, uh, you, we say this about Beal, Wes Unseld is regurgitating the same, Junior is regurgitating the same talking points all season. Where is his self, like, I'm sure there'll be a point of self-reflection in the offseason. He's very analytical. There should be at least. But where is the self-reflection of him mid-season? I mean, this is now what they've been together since October or even earlier. I don't, I don't remember what the NBA calendar is anymore. But it's like, where is that? Because he is literally saying the exact same thing and playing the same lineup every game and hoping for a different result. What makes him think that the result's going to be any different? So here's my thing. Like, I'm not saying Wes is a bad coach. I don't think that. I'm not saying that he won't actually end up being a very effective NBA head coach. What I'm saying is he is still stuck in assistant coach mode. And even his comments speak to that. When he talked to Chase Hughes for that interview, uh, he talked about how weird it was to be in the first chair and um, that managing people is the biggest part of his job as a head coach. But he draws on his experience as a player development assistant for the Wizards in the early 2000s. And Larry talked about how he was great there and he would pull you aside and he would listen to you and he said forming those relationships, bonding during film sessions, one-on-one workouts, like that's where you learn that getting to know the players beyond the game of basketball is pivotal to earning their trust. If you don't have that underlying relationship, then it doesn't matter. And you've got to understand that mentally where a guy is at emotionally sometimes, all stuff. He kept talking about the human element. That's what assistant coaches do. Head coaches are these guys. They are one step above everybody on sort of the yeah. pedestal of, of authority and hierarchy. And they run shit. And then the assistant coaches yeah. work behind the scenes to, hey, I know coach was kind of mean today, but, you know, he, he's not yeah. picking on you. Like, he, that's the guy that puts Band-Aids on things. Like, How would it be possible for him to have that relationship with 15 players? Bingo. But, or even more when roster turnover happens. It's, it's impossible. You so why even aim for that? Exactly. That's what you should be grooming your assistant coaches to do. And you as the head coach should be MFing people that aren't playing or benching a guy yeah. completely to try to make a point. And you can't worry about feelings. And I'm not saying that you need to be an a-hole, but you can't do that in real time. You know, and, and then you could go behind the scenes and be like, hey, look, this is why I was tough on you today. Like, I'm not saying that you can't repair things with individual guys, but you can't be best friends with 15 dudes. Yeah. And then expect them to like run through a wall for you the same way. Like you, you have to be, sometimes NBA coaches are are intentionally tough on guys because they want them to like win in spite of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you all rally around me because you don't like me, well, you probably won't last super long, but it also yeah. might get some kind of short-term surge. So You're talking about at that point. <laughs> right, right. You, you, yeah. You've got a short shelf life, but you've now motivated guys to play very hard. So let's, I, look, let's, yeah, let's look at the quick laundry list though. Like he said, there've been, there were two obvious Bertans incidents. Mm-hmm. I think we knew of one that we saw on the court. There was apparently two, I think it's been reported. There was Montrez Harrell, KCP, Isaiah Todd, contract detrimental the team. No idea what it was. Who knows if it was a practice court thing, but we, we've had that. We've had Dinwiddie saying down. that he is mm-hmm. unliked. 
Um, and then Dinwiddie being shipped off. We've had about shots. Yeah. We've had the three center rotation to your point, Kev last year was smooth. This year when they tried it, it was anything but smooth. He would take out the hot hand, put in the cold hand, stick with the undersized guy versus the mammoth center on the other team, not handled well at all. And then you could even see there was the, the centers had no chemistry versus last year where they did. Um, there's a long, laundry list of issues that have occurred since the beginning of the season through the end of the season extended beyond the deadline. So even that whole, Oh, it's so refreshing without some of the guys gone. No, it's not refreshing. None of them, none of no player would say it's refreshing right now. Like they're getting their ass kicked every game. There's no way that they're saying that anymore. So who are they going to blame now? And all this under West Elmsville juniors watch. So again, not to put this all on him because these issues have been with this organization for a while, but he has not changed anything. He's just a different person in the seat. If you're like going to roll with Wes and he clearly has a certain temperament, you need to build a coaching staff of not more guys like him. It's got to be people that sort of complement what he does or doesn't do and kind of augment your approach. I think you see this with like Patrick Ewing in Georgetown. They're not going to fire him because they can't. It'd be a very bad mm-hmm. look. And they're not going to fire Wes after one year because they can't. It would be a very bad look for all parties involved, especially with his ties to the org. But what you can do is say, hey, everybody to the seats to the right of you, you got to go or you're moving one chair over at the very least. And we're bringing an assistant coach that has some cachet that brings the fire. To me, the one I've kind of latched onto recently is you kind of just hope that Vanderbilt fires like Jerry Stackhouse. You put him on as an assistant coach. No one on earth, and I promise you, will like give any shit to Jerry Stackhouse. Like people don't mess with him. They're afraid of him. And Vanderbilt, despite not being very good, I think is a lot of that situation. They run really good NBA stuff. And if you're worried about what your offense looks like, Jerry is a guy that could come in and help you scheme up really good things. But again, mm-hmm. he's a dude that has some credibility. He was a really good player. He's actually probably a reasonable career comp for Bradley Beal, to be honest. But two, and, and Larry's talked about this too, like that was the dude in the locker room that everybody was scared shitless of if Jerry was in a bad mood. <laughs> That's instant authority for these guys. Yeah. Someone need, like that. Yeah, they need something like that for sure. All right, guys, that's kind of the major stuff I had for you today. Any parting shots here or anything we missed? So I'm going to do a plug. Uh, I wrote a very long piece about Denny Avdia uh, that I published yesterday. And um, folks who are interested in like where Denny rates in terms of players of similar age, uh, where he rates in his draft class, uh, visit Bulls Forever and check that out. Jeff, did you talk anywhere in there about that he the gym is his cathartic place and it's his sanctuary and where he goes for mental respite and um, the practice court is is sort of like where he finds his zenness? <laughs> no, I, I did. Um, I mean, that to me, I mean, I love that. Actually, like that comment because that's I mean, Isaiah Thomas talked about that, that, that. You know, and that's that was true. That's true of a lot of players. I mean, that's a that was certainly the case for me back when I played. So um, uh, I, I very much connect with Denny on that level, but this was more looking at, um, you know, how he plays, um, how well he plays relative to young players. Cause that's one of the things that people talk about a lot and we, we can do another podcast on this at, at another time, but it's like, well, he's good for his age. He's, he's fine for his age. He's good for his draft class. And uh, those things don't really hold up. 
Um, but it's also like not necessarily predictive of how good a player is going to be. It's it's somewhat predictive. Typically, players who are very good young end up being very good when they're 25 and 28, and 30, and so on. Right? I mean, the 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 best player, the players who actually last until they're 40 or 42 and, and are productive are the all-time greats. Those are the guys who you know have talent to burn. Kareem, mm-hmm. you know, Carl Malone, LeBron. Um, so. That that does hold up. So it's like he's he is definitely behind where his peers are age wise through through history and going back to the one and done you know rule. He's definitely behind in terms of where his draft class is, but that doesn't mean that that's where it needs because he's got very clear areas that he can work on. That if he improves, he'll he should speed past a number of guys if he improves those skills. So that's what the yeah. article. Yeah, it was actually really good. So I'm also plugging Kevin's article. I liked it a lot. I thought he gave some good information. One point that uh, I thought that he made that I've tried to make on Twitter when people have said, oh, Denny could play point guard. And I think Kevin made that was you have to be a threat to, to unlock your playmaking. You could pass, but if no one is collapsing on you, if you don't have that gravity, that doesn't work. So like it's, Denny has a lot of skill work to do. I think I'm not going to give away anything in the article, also in the article, but then he has a lot of skill work to do before he could really be that dynamic playmaking threat that people think he could be. I think he could be a good player. I'm just giving my own opinion. I think, I think he's just more of a project than everyone probably expected. I think the, the, the good thing is he could impact a game without scoring. The bad thing is from a pure skill level in turn on offense, he is really behind. And the other thing, just my own commentary, I think he could be a good player. I don't think you could teach a guy to play point guard, especially when the guy cannot shoot off the dribble or dribble with his left hand or finish at the basket. Those are not things that can be learned or learned at the NBA level. You could build like weaknesses. You can't turn yourself from a non-dribbler to an on-ball threat dynamic point guard. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, yeah. Let's, I, I'm not going to say what I was about to say because we've got to wrap up. That's one of the things <laughs> we can, we'll, we'll save that for the offseason pod, the the, yeah. den, the postseason Denny breakdown. Yeah. yeah. All right. This has been Believe in Wizards. Uh, this has been the Bulge Forever crew. It's another three-point play here. I think we're going to do a spaces uh, pretty soon, maybe post-NCAA tournament about some draft stuff. I think we could do one post like the last game, of the, like maybe the evening of the last game of the season. The plan is to do a spaces. We could kind of just let it all out at that point. Yeah. We could give, at that point, the appropriate time, we could even ask Brad Beal to be on our spaces and he could tell us, Everything you want to do with the roster. <laughs> I like it. We might have some similar ideas at that point. Yeah. All right, everybody. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. We are presented by betonline.ag, and we will catch you next time. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by 
Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.